Shalom, everybody, and welcome to the Yishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Jerusalem to the world. You're a part of it wherever you are. Shalom, and welcome to the Mamilla Mall. 15 years ago, this was nothing but a kind of dusty, dingy, dangerous place to hang out today. It's the pedestrian mall that brings you right into Jaffa Gate, into the old city of Jerusalem. It is fabulous. And in this month of August, uh, there are so many tourists. And really, is, is the word tourists really right? Maybe you're a tourist to, to some place, I don't know, in Italy. Here, you're not a tourist. You're a pilgrim. You're a friend. You're coming back. You're reconnecting with your homeland or with your spiritual homeland that you've always wanted to connect in. And if you just look outside this window, I'm at the uh, Fresh Cafe right now. Looking out the window, I just see so many people walking past, happy people, um, enjoying the, the life and the air, the holiness, the history uh, of Jerusalem. And this, of course, in our beloved tiny little state, which is surrounded by enemies, people that want to develop nuclear weapons against us, people who are preparing to rocket our tunnel to destroy our country, and somehow we blithely continue, smile, and enjoy uh, the great time that we're living in because we do know that with all the challenges and dangers, we're living in a great renaissance of the Jewish people here in this land and a great, and a great country which is going to broadcast its greatness to hopefully this region and the world. Today's show, folks, uh, firstly, we don't have Rabbi Mike with us. Rabbi Mike is in America on vacation. God bless you. We miss you. Come back soon. Today's, folk, today's show is also sponsored by a lot of our good friends. For example, the good friends at J Brick making Jewish Lego for you, right? Jewish Lego sets, uh, Jewish themes, and I'm trying to get them to make a Merkava tank. And check out J Brick and their Facebook page and their website, jbrick.com. Our good friends at Techelet, T E K H E L E T, being a true blue Jew, right? With the blue strings. You can get them yourself. It's a uh, commandment that has come back to life after a 2,000 year hiatus. We just found out how to use that Murex truncali snail to make blue string yet again. So beautiful, so awesome. And I wear it myself. Uh, who else? Of course, the Land of Israel Network, which is uh, the show that this is on, all the other great shows. Uh, at the Land of Israel Network, and of course the founders, Ari and Jeremy, and their great show, and all the other good folks, uh, and Hebron, right? Visit us at hebron.com. Come to see the mothers and the fathers uh, waiting for you in the Jewish community, the brave, small Jewish community of Hebron, which keeps its doors open for you through thick and thin so that you can connect to the founders. Oh, yeah, and finally, Django, Django.net, your source for information about Life in Israel, I go to it on my RSS feed all the time, Janglo.net. I check out what's for sale or events that are happening. It's the way to inform yourself about Israel. Now, today's show, those are all great friends of ours. Thank you so much. Now, today's show is particularly interesting. I have three great guests for you today. At the very end of the show, you're going to hear from a doctor, Dr. Owen, who is uh, studying cancer, actually like researching how to fix cancer. Uh, and he's a top doctor, and he's doing some uh, sabbatical work here in Israel. And he's not a Jew, not exactly. He's not a Christian. He's a Gentile. He's one of the uh, seven Noahide law keepers. And he was with me today at the Tomb of the Patriarchs. Right before that, we're going to listen to speak with Brian Mast. He is a congressman out of Florida. If you remember a few years ago, I interviewed him. He is the congressman who lost his legs below the knee in Afghanistan. Uh, now he's a congressman. Uh, I didn't know him as a congressman. I knew him as a friend and a guy who came to volunteer in Israel. Now he's coming as a congressman on a mission to fact-find, and we met with him at the King David Hotel. What a fabulous hero and person he is. Listen for that for both Israel stuff and also just, just what it is to be a heroic person. 
But we start off a show today, our show today, with a good friend and somebody that I look up to a lot for his work uh, as a true Jewish intellectual in so many ways that really Jewish intellectuals do it. He's a, he's a law professor. He's an author. Uh, he's a head of a talk series at the 92nd Street Y. You know him. You've read his blog uh, at, uh, at the Times of Israel. And, and let me give uh, one of my heroes, Thane Rosenbaum, a proper introduction. He is an essayist, as I said, a law professor at NYU Law, and an author of both fiction and nonfiction titles, including How Sweet It Is, The Stranger Within, Within Sarah Stein, The Golems of Gotham, Secondhand Smoke, and Elijah Visible. Uh, his articles appear in the New York Times, in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Huff Post, Daily Beast, amongst others. As I told you, he's got his own kind of program about world events and politics at the 92nd Street Y called The Talk Show. Um, he directs the at NYU. He directs the forum on law, culture, and society. He's a he's really a hu humanitarian uh, rights law legal scholar, a human rights uh, guys defending human rights around the world. And he's also got nonfiction, including some very controversial books coming out. Uh, but the one that I met him through was his book called Payback: The Case for Revenge. And I read a review about it, and I was like, Wait a minute, let me get this straight. A Democrat liberal-type Jew is writing about revenge as a legal theory. And remember, folks, I went to law school, so like that talks to me. I was just like hooked. And from then on, I became a fan of Thane. Thane also joined me today. My luck, he joined me today in Hebron uh, on a tour. Thane Rosenbaum, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, my friend Yishai. Nice seeing you. It's wonderful to see you. Uh, Thane, first thing before we go on, what, what is the name Thane about? You've got some characteristics. You've got the shock of like blonde hair. You got this name Thane. What is that about? What is Thane? Well, Thane actually was the title of Macbeth, of the, 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 the characters in Macbeth. They're all the Thane of Cawdor, the Thane of Fife, the Thane of Gloms. I think they were uh, uh, Scottish uh, lords. Uh, landed gentry, although I've never owned any property. My parents must have had high expectations. Uh, so they were either were Shakespeare fans uh, or they, were, they wanted me to own Scottish property. <laughs> well, which one is it? Were they really Shakespeare fans? Is that why? I, I think they were more likely to think that they were... They, that, that, I think it's more likely they thought I might be a writer than I would be a, a Scottish lord. Well, they were right. They were right. They were right. Thane, um, first thing... Um, you write a lot about the, the, the conflict in Israel. <clears throat> you write about Israel's narrative. Today you, you got to visit a place of, um, which is kind of world-renowned as, as one of the hotspots of, of the Israel-Arab conflict. And at the same time also, past all the problems of it, you got to see the core of Jew the beginnings of Jewish history. Tell me about your experience today. I did a lot of talking today, but I kind of wanted to, to hear back on air what you thought, what you really thought. Well, for all of your listeners, I must say that Hebron is where it's at. Uh, it is not just the ground zero uh, for uh, the, the Jewish life, uh, but it really is a, provides an incredibly powerful experience, one that I had not really experienced before, even in Jerusalem. Uh, it is a reminder. You know, it makes you think that uh, Jerusalem for Jews is when you know, they develop a true kingdom, uh, but it's not the beginning. Uh, it's as if there's something that takes place before they ever get inside the walls uh, of, of Jerusalem and, and build their temples. So to think that you're actually starting further away 
not much further away, but in the, in the cities where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and King David began his rule. And it's easy to forget that. Uh, and you have to come and see and, f you know, uh, embrace the experience and feel part of the atmosphere of the origins of the Jewish ex experience. Thane, if, if you and I were, um, uh, went back to Harvard 150 years ago, We'd know this stuff cold. I'd say Hebron, you'd be like, well, that's the tomb of the patriarchs. That's where, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob buried. Everybody knows that Jew or Gentile, they knew the Bible. Today, as you wax rhapsodic about the Bible, I think to myself, how many of your NYU law students know a lick of the Bible? And, and we're in a cafe that's having a lot of fun here. But how many of them know the Bible in that, do they know that Israel is a protagonist? I contend that today... We have lost a narrative tool because the Bible doesn't play to most young ears. And therefore, if I say Israel and I say Palestine, I say, so what? Like, I don't know which one is writer or more historical. I, I never heard of, I don't know your little tales of Abraham. I may know the Odyssey better than I know the tales of Abraham. Well, people don't know any of the religions. I mean, one of the fascinating ideas about the Quran is that Jerusalem is never mentioned in it. Uh, and yet there's a claim by Muslims that Jerusalem is so holy to, to Muslims, and yet it never mentioned once in the Quran. How important can it be if you never mention it in your holy book? Uh, as Judeo-Christian life, I think even most Jews don't think of, if you ask them where are the patriarchs uh, buried, if you ask them where did Judaism really begin, uh, they would tell you, the Middle East, they would tell you Jerusalem, but they would not invoke Hebron. And Hebron, you know, gets, and I'm, you know, I, I must say that I am a casualty of this. Uh, and I say with great regret that you, it's very easy to think of Hebron as a settlement instead of thinking, no, it's actually the original text. It's the very origins of the Jewish people. Uh, and so you can't settle uh, or resettle the place that you were founded at. Uh, this goes beyond Jerusalem, and it's easy to think about in our world, especially in the university world that I inhabit, where, you know, it's so easy to demonize settlers and, e and easy to demonize Israelis as being occupiers. And, of course, that itself strategically was always such a mistake, the misuse of the word occupation. But even lumping the word settler with Hebron is just factually and morally untrue. And... I know of no moral principle that I can think of where a, the, the Jewish people or any people should be deprived the right to live in their historic homeland at the very origins, at the very uh, uh, streets and, and bricks and mountains uh, where their people originated. I know of no moral principle. So I, when one talks about returning land to Arabs, it's particularly, there's a kind of crassness and vulgarity about returning Hebron. Why? Because it's small? Because it's not too large of a block and therefore it doesn't have a logistical problem in returning it? But I just, it strikes me as absurd uh, that Hebron should ever be in that discussion. And yet, serious suit and tie folks out in Brussels, organizations like UNESCO, have no problem deleting, erasing Jewish history from places like the Temple Mount in Jerusalem or the Tomb of the Patriarchs in Hebron. And I was talking to you today about the audacity. They're not going after second-rate sites. 
the first-rate, least doubted, most uh, bona fide uh, 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 historical Jewish places. Those are the places that are under well, attack. Yishai, you should, Yishai, you should say what you said to me earlier. It was very compelling. I, I don't know if your listeners have heard that, that there's the level of audacity, the chutzpah, and in some ways the genius of thinking about what they chose to pick. They selected the most holiest sites. By the way, the sites that there shouldn't have been any debate about, right? You'd think that they would have picked Tel Aviv. Uh, they would have picked the newer cities. But to pick the ones that existed thousands of years before there ever was a Quran or a Muhammad is uh, the audacity itself has a kind of genius attached to it. I really do think so. I, I do think that they're almost underrated in their, I call it the genius of the yeah. jihad. Upcoming article, hopefully. Uh, you mentioned something that already is something that I, that I need to probe you about. A lot have been said. A lot has been said about the university, anti-Semitism, the alternative narrative, etc. And sometimes, when you're here in Israel, you think to yourself, "Well, maybe people are exaggerating. You know, maybe it's not that bad. It's not. I mean, America is a good country." Smart people work at universities. And you think to yourself, you know, it's not, it can't be that bad out there. But speaking to you earlier today, I got the impression that it's that bad and worse. Oh, it's much worse. <laughs> T tell me a little bit about the situation. Look, at a university. And whatever you could share from your own experiences also. I mean, you know, if, at a university uh, in the United States, most of them, there's kind of a, an article of faith, a kind of... Uh, a, a password, a secret code that everyone has, which is that in order to gain acceptance into fashionable society, in order to be treated respectfully in the faculty lounge, in order to be taken seriously as a scholar, uh, one needs to repeat a kind of mantra that Israel is the worst human rights violator in the history of the world. And I know that sounds absurd, but this is how, this is the easy access to the graciousness of the faculty lounge, to repeat a mantra, two things, to invoke Israel as nothing but an occupier and a human rights violator, and to speak of the poor, poor Palestinians. You can't even say poor, it has to be poor, poor Palestinians. And never to hold Palestinians accountable for any complicity in their own suffering. Uh, and it's, a, it's, it's, its formation for all of us, its origins, is a very, well, it's, it's anti-Semitic in, it, in, its, in its origins, but it's disguised, it's masked as a human rights issue. So it, it's, it's anti-Semitism made respectable through the lens of human rights. Uh, and, I, I get the logic, but I, I'm asking you about the, is this, what you just described, again, it's, is it that pervasive? It's worse. It's as bad as it can be. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we're living in a very, you know... You, you work at NYU. Yeah. That's a... New York City is, is one of the but major a, hubs yeah, of the and Jewish it's, people. It's in Greenwich Village, and it's known as a progressive, liberal, you know, uh, institution. And progressives uh, and liberals have followed this party line. It's an anti-colonial party line. Uh, if you are brown-skinned, you're a victim automatically. If you're white-skinned, this is why the denial of Mizrahi Jews as being brown-skinned. It's not just the erasure of antiquities. It's not just the erasure of historical sites. It's also the erasure of Jewish skin tone. Uh, the idea that the narrative is Jews are from Brooklyn. That's where they're from. Maybe from Poland, 
but they're not definitely not from the Middle East. I had the, I, there was a lady from Code Pink in Hebron just yeah. last week, and I was being interviewed by Al Jazeera, and she comes up to me as I'm being interviewed, and she goes, "You're from America, right?" I'm like, "Yeah, <laughs> what of it?" <laughs> and she was like. And I, and I was just like, I'm a gun-toting Brooklyn American Jew settler. Is that what you're trying to say? She's like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Al Jazeera was laughing. And I thought to myself, what's funny is that you're the foreigner. Me and Al Jazeera, we're from the region. Right. We, we, have, we have what to talk about. Right. You're just an instigator coming here, you know, trying to mess us up. But we, the Semitic people, we have some cooperation and understanding. We even know how to war with one another. You're the, you're the outside instigator trying to mess around with us. Well, there is a kind of uh, perception, uh, again, uh, its own philosophy, that Jews don't need to live here. Right. That they don't actually have to live there. Even for people who might accept that there were Jews in the Bible, <laughs> even if you accept the fact that the Old Testament is filled with these towns in and around Jerusalem, there is a kind of very perverse logic that your return to your ancestral homeland is illegitimate, that it's wrong, that by returning to your ancestral homeland, you have displaced the real native people. Somehow Jews are not the real native people. Only the Arabs can be. Why can the Arabs be? Because they're brown-skinned. Uh, and white uh, Israelis are considered Western imperialists. And this narrative is so strong. Remember, there isn't much in university life. Communism is dead. Deconstructionism is dead. Postmodernism is dead. Uh, the only thing that really has caught on is racism. Racism is the only thing in liberal institutions that people are fixated on, obsessed with. And they, are, they will call out racism very quickly, very quick to call out who is a racist. And so this, this, this storyline of Western Jews who somehow made Israel their homeland and did so in an illegitimate way and by doing so stole the land from the Arabs who are otherwise powerless people and are, and, and are, are blameless in every way. And so, you know, it's kind of got a, uh, you know, I always joking, it's, it has a kind of... Uh, uh, Lawrence of Arabia story of this land as opposed to an Exodus story. You know, that if you're thinking of two competing pop cultural narratives, uh, the university life and uh, uh, book life and li literary magazines, they buy into a Lawrence of Arabia narrative and they see uh, Jews as have, you know, uh, perpetuating a stereotype of conniving, stealing, robbing someone else of their entitlement and you know this this narrative is very very strong on campuses because it fits it's the only reason that intersectionality is so strong for those of your listeners who don't know intersectionality means that all victim victimized people all marginalized people share a common oppressor and that is the the western colonialist the white Western colonials. It's the only way that you can find these very strange bedfellows. Why would Black Lives Matter align themselves with the Palestinian cause? The Palestinians have no interest in black people. Uh, an African-American living in Gaza would not do well. Why would feminism align themselves with the Palestinian cause? Women are stoned throughout the Islamic world, uh, beheaded, <laughs> dismembered, 
uh, uh, lashed. Uh, why would homosexuals, who we know are torched and thrown off buildings uh, throughout the Islamic world? It creates this absurdity and this, this odd bedfellows, but it's all based on this idea that, the, that they all share the same oppressor, white colonialist Westerners. Thane, you're a New York City Jewish Democrat. Yes. You come from them. Yes. Right? Like, knowing you kind of, and you know, peripherally, peripherally, one would have thought you're one of them. Yes. And somehow uh, your thinking, and I think I would use that word specifically, thinking, kind of has veered off. And that has not exactly ingratiated you amongst them. No. I mean, no one would want to be me. <laughs> nobody wants to be me on a campus, and nobody would want to be. It's so much easier. By the way, that's why it's far more fashionable for Jewish academics to say what I said before, either to keep their mouth shut and their heads down and never mention Israel, right. or if you really want to be popular in the faculty lounge, simply say, Israel's the worst human rights violator on the planet. Same thing at intellectual magazines. Uh, if you don't say this, you're not accepted. And it is a much better career move, certainly a not a career move that I've undertaken, to take that other position. Uh, I don't even know whether these Jews actually believe it. I think that for them, for some of them, it's just flat-out political cynicism, that this is the way to become part of the, part of the right social clique. Um, yeah, it, it is not... A, but, you know, I, in some ways, Yishai, I don't feel that I've moved. Everyone else has moved. I look at myself as a liberal. What is a liberal? A liberal is open to all ideas, who doesn't, isn't told ideologically, I can only think one thing. Uh, in, in, a liberal is someone who's able to make fundamental distinctions between right and wrong, to be able to judge, to be open and to be able to judge. Those two ideas, openness to ideas, and being able to judge, dis make distinctions between right and wrong is something that liberals have forgotten to do, and that's what progressives have done. Uh, what we live in instead is an era of moral relativism. And moral relativism means that we can't judge, that we have no right to judge, that all, all cultures have their own logic, and we have to accept it. Which is why, you know, if you say to a Jewish liberal intellectual, if you say to him, and if he's gay, how could you possibly support uh, uh, how how could you possibly support uh, uh, a Palestinian cause? He is or she would likely say, "Look, it's not my business to judge them. I can only speak to myself and my people. I can judge my people harshly, but I don't think it's right morally, because for me." Uh, all people, all cultures are morally relative to each other. And this is a, this is a sin in the, in the progressive camp. It's a sin on university life because it has allowed people to sort of dismiss, to be casual about crimes that are committed under Islam, human rights violations. You know, you know I, for 23 years I was a human rights law professor and I was, as far as I know, one of the few who pointed out the human rights violations committed under Islam. To say that makes you a racist, makes you Islamophobic, instead of saying, no, I'm a true human rights advocate. As an activist, I want to point out these human rights violations. Moral relativism says, 
we don't point out the human rights violations of another people. We accept on their own terms how they conduct business. So <coughs> is this really a critique of, of the globe right now, or is it, is it more of an American problem, European problem? And when you look at your students, are they totally infected with this? Or are they kind of, do they still want to hear you? Can they hear you? Is there true liberals out there? And also, by the way, I think liberals, another definition is people interested in liberties. Right. You know? Well, law students, the one virtue of them is that they really, <laughs> they, they, don't, they try it's oftentimes not to be political. They want to get out and get a job. They see it as a professional school. Uh, so I'm not sure that this is true. By the way, just parenthetically, I want you to know that was one of the real problems I had in law school. Yeah. I thought I was coming into this place where we were going to learn about justice yeah. and, 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 and the theories behind it and how to make the system work and the Constitution. And I was totally shocked to figure out that it was a trade school. It's a trade vocational school. Right. right. I didn't understand yeah, that. Yeah, no. Business schools like that, medical schools. By the way, the sciences are not like right. this. For obvious reason. It's really the problem is the liberal arts and humanities centers. Schools that are liberal arts colleges, humanities programs, they're the worst. There's no hope. There's nothing that can be done. They are what they are. They're powerful in their own way, uh, and they will support BDS. They will support intersectionality. Um, I don't know. I think I told you an anecdote. I was invited a number of years ago to be a keynote speaker at a human rights conference at Warwick University. Uh, and I was called a week before and told that I was being disinvited. And I had my tickets, and I was ready to go. And I said, how can that be? And someone said, at the, on the phone, they said, well, we thought you were a human rights activist and law professor. And I said, well, I am a human rights activist and law professor. And this person said, well, you're not, because we, we did not realize that you were a Zionist. This is how deep this idea runs, that Zionism, you know, despite all the efforts to revoke the UN resolution that equates Zionism with racism, on campus they're the same. And uh, in America, in throughout Western Europe, uh, and look, I think part of it is that you know uh, Muslims are growing th in as in their numbers throughout Western Europe and in the United States. When you see uh, students for justice in Palestine, the activists on campuses usually it's Muslims. You know, uh, you know. On the other hand, I spoke recently at Berkeley, and uh, this will be painful for your your listeners to hear. And I was, of course, being booed as someone who believes in the killing of Palestinian children. And I finally settled the crowd, essentially embarrassed the crowd that this is supposed to be a place of learning, and this is supposed to be a place of free free speech and academic inquiry, and that one would be ashamed. I would think of you of that school to not permit me to speak. But at the end, you know, during the uh, uh, question and answer period, a woman with blue hair was screaming at me, the Israelis have all this land. They have all this land. And I was laughing. I mean, I just, I don't think of Israel when you compare it to its size of the Arab country, its neighbors, having all this land. And she was screaming at me. And then when I left, another student said, look, we apologize for the harsh treatment, but you should know that that girl who was screaming at you, her father is Israeli. And it's heartbreaking. You know, I, she was probably working out her own edible problem with her father. But she was speaking with the moral authority as a, a young woman with blue hair whose father is Israeli. And she wanted to scream how much it land Israel has and how it's abusing that land. So, Thane, uh, bottom line, 
is there hope for the West, do you think? And, and I want to add to that, maybe just to complicate the question a little bit. Um, I have been basically unable to deal with American politics recently. It's just become this... First thing, it's become as though it's like reality TV. It's like, it's not fun anymore. It's, it's endlessly backbiting. And when I fly to America... Or f- and fly over America, through America, I think to myself, you dumb people, you have the luckiest, nicest country, the nicest country that there is in the world, really, and everything is going for you. Relax. Enjoy it. Be good. Do good. Give to the world. Smile. This is, you know, all of these wonderful things that we grew up with and we're so thankful for America. It's like, it's as though it's being kind of internally churned and, and destroyed. And I, I, it's not clear to me why. Uh, and so, therefore, my, my, qu- my question is, like, is there hope for that next generation? Is there hope for academia where you're at in, 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 in the, you know, the, 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 the world that you live in? Uh, is, is, is America in trouble? In its, it, or is that kind of like an overinflation? I, I think the left is in trouble. I think morally, intellectually, there's a bankruptcy among the intellectual left. And you're seeing the moral hypocrisy, the intellectual dishonesty, the crazy-makingness of it, you know, the UNESCO votes, the endless focus on Israel and not Palestinians, holding Israel accountable to, not, to being an imperfect society, asking everything of Israel and asking nothing of Palestinians, nothing. By the way, I've been saying, you know, this idea of, you want to hear racism. Racism is the way we treat the left treats Palestinians. What we really say to them is, we treat you like infants. We infantilize you. We say, we hold you accountable for nothing. You have You're no, not people. You have no impulse control. Right. Of course you have to stab people. Of course you have to uh, attack people. You couldn't possibly not do that. We wouldn't do that for any other people on earth if the people from Luxembourg decided to do this to the French. It's only the Palestinians that are purely reactive. They can't be treated as adults. So I don't, when you see this sort of twist, UNRWA is a good example of something. Why do you need, why a relief organization only for Palestinians? What makes them so special? Why do refugees from all over the world get one relief organization? And the Palestinians, why? Better looking, taller, smarter? Why exactly, and the only thing I can think of is that their alleged oppressors are Jews. And it's it's very fashionable to make Jews look bad, to demonize Jews, to delegitimize Israel. It's the only... But we're going to make it, though, Thane. See, Israel, you, you've been traveling around the country. Yeah. We're, this country is, is it, again, it's in a renaissance, really, in food, in having children, yes. in building, in, in, in its scholarship of its ancient texts, et cetera, science, startup nation. It, it, Israel should do what it continues to do. But and I'm I asking you about America for a second and for academia, the world that you're in. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I, the academia, I think, is a lost cause. Wow. I do. I feel strongly that it's a lost cause. And, and I, you know, I don't even know how much longer I can do it. I mean, honestly, the next time I'm on this show, <laughs> I may not be involved in academia anymore. Uh, it, my effectiveness is completely undermined by being in an environment that's so so you know, so radically uh, objects to everything I write and say. Um, Jewish Americans is a trickier thing. Uh, Many of these people have never been to Israel. They certainly haven't been to Hebron. 
there's a kind of smugness and arrogance, what I call moral narcissism, a kind of look what Israel did to me as if this is about them. You know, I used to love Israel. I can no longer love it because of its behavior, its policies. I can't think of anything more absurd as if Israel cares about the fact that you planted a tree when you were 11 years old and it owes you something. It owes you so that you can feel better when you have dinner with your Gentile friends. So when they complain about Israel, you don't have anything to apologize for. I think is Americans have had a very hard time knowing how to defend Israel and to be confident about what Israel does and why it has to do what it does. I think that, you know, we have never done a good job of providing the script of what to say. And I think that part of it is just ignorance, part of it is intellectual laziness. Uh, but I do think it's shocking about what passes for dinnertime conversation. And, 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 you, and you realize that we're at like 70 years after the Holocaust. Yes. You know, and, and as after, you know, just 30 years after, you know, many wars yes. against us. And, and somehow it's all been forgotten. All these Holocaust museums, they've been worth nothing. Yes. In terms of... Uh, giving people, you know, a sense of what it's all no, about. No, and in fact, the Holocaust now has been twisted. I did a piece for Tower Magazine recently. It's been twisted, again, also used against Jews, used against Israelis. Israel learned, Israel took the lessons of the Nazis and applied it against the Palestinians. That's, that's right. That's the new, the new look to the Holocaust. <laughs> that this is, the Holocaust is really about a way to give the Israelis uh, uh, the, the lessons, the tutorial on how to create genocide to the poor poor Palestinians look when people raise this question of ethnic cleansing and genocide I freely tell them I said look you know be careful when you say that those words because those are very loaded words don't say that to a Rwandan or Cambodian or to a Jew or to Tibetan or or, 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 or or to a Bosnian Armenian Armenian and the reason is because uh, the the Palestinian population has doubled since the quote-unquote occupation, doubled. And I don't know in any of those other cases, those cases are pure subtraction. So stop using the words ethnic cleansing and genocide because you can't double a population at the same time that you're killing them. Yes. Moreover, I think that a liberal could be actually proud of our beloved yes. country 99% of the time. Well, and, and those times that you're not, that's fine, because as you said, imperfection is the nature of humanity and certainly the nature of states. I just think it's just absurd that liberals don't say there's one democracy anywhere in the Middle East that's liberal, has a free press, that holds their leaders accountable by putting them in jail, uh, that has, operates fully under the rule of law. An apartheid system, really, 15,000 Ethiopians were airlifted to Israel. This is a racist apartheid system. Two Supreme Court justices are Arabs. Not one Arab citizen of Israel chooses to live anywhere else. How racist a society can that be? Why wouldn't they want to live in, a, in an Arab-dominated Muslim society? Why would you want to be a minority in Israel? Obviously, it's not that racist. It, is there racism in Israel? Yes, as there is in the United States. It is an imperfect society. But to, you can't even speak of Israel in the same sentence with any of its neighbors if you're a liberal. And that's the part that, again, this is the twisted part, that liberals should be behind, solidly behind the, the, the Jewish state. And the fact that it's they're not, and so avowedly finding ways to demonize Israel suggests that anti-Semitism is still very much alive in our world.
Thane, it's been great talking with you. Uh, we're very excited to see where your career will uh, take its next steps. Um, I still want to have hope for those, for many good Jews out there. And I, and I recently debated J Street at Temple Emmanuel in Beverly Hills, and I still, f and a lot of you know folks from that from that temple came, and I want to believe that there's still a lot of good folks that that talk with them. Let's not lose them, and certainly let's not lose the Jewish youth. And also, I'm going to say something is now a person has also become a fundraiser in part for Hebron. I don't want to lose all that Jewish wealth that has been built up and a lot of success. You know, why should it go to, to, to these, like, uh, you know, causes that are not this greatest cause, which is the building of a Jewish state? I, I still have, I want to have hope. Well, but hearing you douses that a little well, bit. Well, I'm sorry to say that because I, what I don't want to leave your listeners the impression is I still think the vast majority of American Jews are, are, are strong supporters of Israel. And even if they're quiet and reticent in these, in these household debates, they know. They get the concept. They know there's no comparison. I, I do, want, do not want your listeners to think. I think universities are beyond hope. Mm -hmm. But I do think that American Jews, no matter what J Street says or what Peter Beinert says or what the forward re says, it's just not true. Most American Jews are not stupid. They actually can see the reality. As I said, you know, I'm a liberal and you're saying I've moved. I haven't moved. I just think everyone got stupider. You know, Ed Koch, the former mayor of New York, used to say he was a Democrat with sanity, right? And that's what I would say. I'm a liberal with sanity. I'm not any different. I'm looking at this objectively, and I, it's not even a close call. I see what is here in Israel. I see what Israel has to offer. I see what, how little these Arab Muslim societies have to offer. I see the way they mis abuse their people, the human rights violations committed against their people, and I simply am not willing to condemn Israel when its neighbors conduct themselves as such barbarians. Thane Rosenbaum is an essayist, law professor, and author of both uh, many fiction and nonfiction titles found on Amazon and other places. Check it out. Uh, he's also a distinguished fellow at NYU School of Law, where he directs the Forum on Law, Culture, and Society and has an annual series of discussions on cultural world events and politics at the 92nd Street Y in Manhattan. Thane, thanks so much for being with Thank us. Thank you much. I'm so happy that you continue to do this podcast, Yeshai. And uh, it's, uh, you're an incredible, righteous, partisan representative of the Jewish people. And I feel better knowing that you are in our world. You know what? Partisan? Maybe partisan. Yeah, partisan. <laughs> that's what I mean. Old school partisan. That's right. Thane Roosevelt. Thank you so much. Thank you, Yeshai. All right, folks, you are listening to the Yishai Fleischer Show, and I'm here with a friend uh, who uh, I've interviewed before on this program. And uh, at the time, he was uh, a veteran of the United States Army, uh, an injured veteran uh, who lost both of his legs and a finger as well, uh, but uh, uh, came to Israel uh, on a volunteer program in the Army, and I was just like, in the IDF, and I was just like, Brian Mass, you are the most incredible person, and I had a chance to, to interview him and befriend him as well. And even back then, he had a dream. I, heard, I read later on that he dreamt as he was recovering at Walter Reed Hospital uh, from his injuries that he sustained in Afghanistan, yeah. uh, that uh, he had a dream that he wanted to be a congressman in the United States, a representative, and I may maybe start with congressman. Who knows where else he'd go? And you know what? Um, I just 
looked up how exactly he won uh, his seat in Congress. And let me tell you, he faced some 12 folks, 15 folks, faced a lot of other folks and went out there and won his dream. This after also uh, getting a degree from Harvard Extension School. Oh, and this also after a t- after his injury recovering, becoming a, a, a bomb expert for which organization was it? The DEA? The uh... I worked with a couple of federal agencies, <laughs> but I was a bomb tech in the Army first, so... So you were a bomb tech in the army, you, but you came out of your injuries and with your incredible prosthetic legs, just teaching folks about disman- dealing and dismantling with bombs. That must have like that must have put the fear of God in them when you when you when you taught them uh, about how to deal with bombs. They, they they must have said to themselves, "Let's take this seriously." Well, uh, I can't remember if I told you before, but we as bomb technicians we have some very serious sayings that are jovial as well. You know, we say our motto is uh, "initial success or total failure." Right? <laughs> you get it right or you get it wrong. There's there's no in between when you're dealing with bombs. And the other thing that we say often about bombs is sometimes it's better to be lucky than good, and uh, that's the truth of it. It's true in golf and poker and uh, definitely true with bombs I had I found one bomb too many I had one bad day but I am a religious man I'm a, I'm a Christian man I think it was the path that the the Lord had for me in uh, you know giving me some great challenges to overcome and and presenting that opportunity that we all have we all have challenges in front of us and we have to make the choice do they destroy us or define us or do we use them as something that that makes us stronger than we've ever been and and being a religious person I I think often about every story throughout the Bible or the Torah, and it's always somebody that is just average or below average that is able to overcome in some way. It's it's never anybody special. You just you're below average, and you you stepped up and you did it. And uh, so I'm I'm honored to be able to do it. It's an honor. You think that uh, had you not lost uh, some of your limbs, uh, you would have gone on to like you would have wanted to go on. Uh, to, to Congress and to Harvard and all these things? Well, I was in the military for a dozen years, for 12 years. Uh, and my plan was to be into the military for 20 or 30 years. That was my path. I loved what I did. I didn't want to leave it. And it was only after injury, after losing two legs and a finger, that I, I, I was never going to be an asset on the battlefield anymore. That was one of the most difficult things to try and, and wrap my head around that I had lost my purpose in life and that's where I started thinking about running for office was how do I regain my purpose how do I how do I find a way to get back in the fight and that's how I started thinking about it maybe my next battlefield would be the battlefield of words and ideologies and fighting for the the heart and soul instead of the maybe what you could say is the physical well-being it's a different fight but just as important we're here in Jerusalem. We're in the balcony of the uh, famous King David Hotel. It's wonderful to, to see you here. And here in Israel, we fight both those battles. We fight a physical battle that you discussed. Uh, it's a constant battle that we face. And we also fight ideological battles. And here you are in the country. You're seeing it again, this time with your uh, great wife. When you look at Israel... And you're now even more involved in, in American, American life. Like, why do you come out here? Why, why do you make Israel part of your life? You must be so busy. You don't get to see your kids enough. Like, why are you here right now? 
Well, what you say is true. There, as a member of Congress, there's never enough time with the family. We're away constantly. I'm here with uh, two dozen other members of Congress that all have a, a special place for Israel in our heart. Many of us for different reasons, but uh, you know, the reason to be here is to 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 understand and learn and and have to the ability to see with our own eyes why it's so important to have that relationship between the United States of America and Israel, and that's something that I truly believe is incredibly important. Important, not just uh, for the benefit of the United States. Our 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 relationships are, are mutually beneficial. Uh, you know, we benefit each other. I could speak in depth about the security concerns of of nations like uh, Iran or or what goes on with Daesh or or ISIS or uh, Hamas or Hezbollah and and the way they affect things globally. This is something that we could speak about. And Israel is is our only ally, our only true ally in this fight. And uh, without Israel, we see an Iranian imperial empire that, you know, soon enough affects everything to the south and are already working down in Yemen. And now they're surrounding Saudi Arabia and Qatar and and that is affecting all of global interests. So just from a military strategic front, it's incredibly important to us. From an ideological front, when you think about the things that we represent, you know, democracy, we discuss this, human rights for, for all people of all backgrounds, of all religions, um, independence and freedom. And, you know, that's why people call you the startup nation, because you foster those things that uh, allow people to harness the most powerful thing inside of them, which is the that free will uh, of, of independence that's inside of everybody that when it's not when it's not quelled uh, but is allowed to grow it'll you achieve the most amazing things we represent those same things and it's important for us to to look at our similarities recognize that while they're not unique to us they are certainly special within us and, and come together and foster those things you know uh, congressman mast Brian uh, you know that um, we're the startup nation here in Israel uh, but we're also, this is a little known thing, we're also the power down nation. We have a Sabbath. We know how to power it all down, turn off our phones. And in this world of like super connectivity, just to knowing how to get away from that and, the, and that almost that commandment to get away from that, the, the commandment to remember, take a day off is very important. That's one of the secrets of our country. And that's, um, uh, that's about holiness, about specialness, about our relationship with God. You and I were talking about that before. You got to see, uh, they, they took you into the old city. Again, you're walking on, is, is the word prosthetic the right word? It's yeah. not the robotic, whatever they are. They're uh, quite modern pieces of equipment. But it's not so easy for you to walk on uh, things like very uneven ground, that is the floors of, of the old city of Jerusalem with its rocks and all that. And they took you to the city of David through, through water tunnels and stuff. So, um, you know, tell me about what it's like also to connect to Israel. You, you have the, the, the strategic military connection that you talked about there's a high tech what about the the the, the power down nation the the holiness of this land i know some of your fellow uh, members they like feel very strongly about that what is that like like for you so you know my personal the the power down aspect of i wish i got to power down sometimes it never happens uh maybe that's sometimes i do it as i said i'm a a religious man i'm a religious you know practicing christian but it's I guess for me, it's impossible to turn it off. You're just, it's constantly on your mind, in the back of your mind. It's very difficult to turn off. Uh, It is, for me, it is very important to come here, make the connections, see the sights, you know, walk in the footsteps, walk in in these historic places and, and be able to put 
what I can see with my eyes together with what I've, I've read in words for every year of my life. It's important to me. And uh, it does hold a special place in my heart. And I may not even realize at this moment just what a special place that holds. It probably will take a little while to set in. And one of those things that I'll, I'll read something, uh, you know, a week or a month or a year from now, and I'll think back at what I just, uh, what I've experienced throughout these, these 10 days of being here and say, yeah, that brings it together. That makes sense. And that's what we do through life. We have these experiences and we draw upon them. That's where I tell people it's incredibly important to, to visit the, the nation of Israel or visit other places like this to, to see with your own eyes, to develop your own stories, to have your own experiences. I'll give you something here real quick. You know, when we, when we met the first time, I was here, uh, you know, serving alongside the IDF, serving with the military here after serving with our, with our U.S. military. And that was very special for me. And since that time, since that experience of serving here, I've had the opportunity, not just in the United States, but internationally, to speak about my comparisons between the militaries and, and that time with both the militaries and what I learned about you know, serving uh, alongside the IDF and things that were important to me. And while I know that it's important to go out there and, and contribute philanthropically to things that you believe in, the point that I always make to people is that if I would have simply made a contribution monetarily to, to this cause that I think is important, nobody would have ever asked me to come and speak about that time that I wrote a check for something. You know, it's important that we see something with our own eyes. It's important that we do something with the work of our own hands. And in that, when we develop a story of our own, something that we can really share, that's where we get to truly go out there and make a difference, in my opinion. I got I to gotta let you get some rest. I feel like you're like a man who needs a little bit of rest. And you're here in country in Israel right now. And you're not getting a lot of rest, you told me. Um, you're from Florida. That's your district. Is in, uh, where, is that, where is your district exactly, exactly now? So I'm in Florida's 18th Congressional District. The 18th Congressional District it starts in the Palm Beach area of Florida. It moves north from there. I have some great cities like Palm Beach Gardens and Jupiter and Hope Sound and, and uh, Stewart, Palm City and Port St. Lucie and Fort Pierce. Great places along the east coast uh, of Florida. That There's we, a few Jews there as well, I'm guessing. Uh, there are. There are. We certainly, uh, I get a number of opportunities to speak at synagogues there and talk about the experiences and, you know, have discussions about what's important to us. Now, before I do let you go, one of the reasons that you and I, I think, get along is because, uh, and you've mentioned it a few times here, you're a military man and you see the world in military terms. First thing I want everybody to know, uh, I'll translate from what I see with my eyes, that you carry with you uh, the bracelets of men who have fallen. Uh, here's Sergeant uh, Justin Allen, and Jonathan Penny, and I don't know what the third one is, Santiago. And these are, these are guys who you knew and uh, who are no longer with us, who, who died in the, in, the, in the line of battle. And earlier, when I asked you, are you having fun? You know, and I, and I, I just wanted to hear you say, you know, yeah, you know, I'm having a great time. You know, I, I really enjoy being in Congress. But that, that's not the answer you gave me. And I, and I think that folks should, should hear what you're saying because the answer that you gave me is an answer that we need, I think we need to hear about life. <laughs> Well, I think uh, it's one of the more common questions that I get often. Are you having fun being a member of Congress? And of course, there are moments of fun and joy in what I do. But uh, as a military person, I, I say that it's very similar to time in the military. Fun 
is not the job. It's not the purpose of what we're doing. You have fun when the mission's accomplished, when you get something good done, when you when you accomplish that. That's when you have joy because you, you got the job done. You rose above the challenges and succeeded. All of the stuff in between, like in the military, when you're crawling through the mud and you're tired and you got 100 pounds on your back and, and you're being shot at, you know, that's not necessarily fun. But when you get the job done, you're joyful about it. And that's the same thing about being a legislator, being a, you know, a representative of people. Not every moment of it is fun and joyful. It doesn't always put a smile on your face when you're doing it, but you get to do something in a cause that is bigger and more important than yourself as an individual. You get to represent other people and try to be the best possible representative that you can. And when you do that, there is joy in it. And that's where the fun comes, when you get the job done. When you get the job done, there you go, folks. Uh, there's a, there's an aspect to life which is like the military in general. It's like it's like maybe maybe even this world is not really really about joy. It's really about doing something good in this world. Yes, there's joyful moments, and we have to raise our kids in joy and love in joy and serve God in joy in joy, but but not for joy. You know, I. I get a lot of opportunity, especially now being a representative, to speak to young people, uh, you know, high schoolers and things like that. And the message that I always give them, aside from what I already said to you, you know, do something with the work of your hands. Don't just live on social media or things like that as so many, uh, so many can, can find themselves falling into. You know, do something real and, and something that, that you can feel. Um, but beyond that, I say, you know... I've, I've seen sacrifice. I've seen many others sacrifice. Uh, you know, I have my own injuries, my own scars, but there's not anything that I regret about it. And the reason that I have zero regrets is because what I was serving was bigger than me. I was serving my brothers and my sisters to my left and right. I was serving my, my country. Those are two things that I believe to be more important than the breath in my lungs and the last beat of my heart and the last thought in my mind. And so in that, I have zero regrets about any sacrifice that I had to make. And so that's the, the message that I give to young people whenever I get the chance. Serve something bigger than yourself, and, and I can almost promise you, you won't have any regrets. There you go, folks. Uh, we're here at the beautiful King David uh, Hotel, the balcony in the back. If you haven't done it, by the way, come out here and, and sit here one time. Have a cup of tea or a beer. It's, it's special by itself. And just look at the old city walls. That is something bigger for me, something bigger than myself is Jerusalem and, and building up this country and, and our relationship with the United States and with people like you. You are my friend, Brian Mast, and also Sergeant, right? Uh, what, what was the... What was the uh, I was a staff sergeant. Staff I was sergeant. a staff sergeant. But That's right. we're friends. That's right. But now I'm also honored to call you Congressman. Brian Mast, thanks so much. Thank you, my friend. Good to talk to you. All right, folks, you are listening to the Yishai Fleischer Show, and I'm here with a Dr. Owen, who is here in Israel right now serving in one of our premier hospitals on his sabbatical uh, as a cancer specialist, studying cancer and trying to cure it. Uh, and he wanted to come with me to Marat HaMachpelah, to the Tombs of the Fathers and Mothers here in Hebron, bring his whole family. And when I questioned him, since my, my well-experienced eye told me uh, something's up, something's a little different, Turns out that Dr. Owen is not only trying to heal the world, but he's also trying to, he's connecting with a movement called Bnei Noach, or Noahidism, i.e. those people who, Gentiles, non-Jews, who reject uh, their other religion or their former religion, or come to, in any case, forget about rejection, more importantly, the love and connection to serving God through Torah, but still while being a Gentile. 
And uh, Dr. Owen, first thing, uh, thanks so much. How do you feel about being right now standing with me here on this 2,000-year-old floor beneath us is 3,800 years of uh, burial of the Abraham and Sarah and the biblical family? How does that feel to you today? Uh, it feels amazing. It's a very spiritual place, and it's a pleasure to be here. I have never been here before, and it's nice to be here with my family. It is nice to have you here with your family. And I wanted to ask you... Uh, what's drawn you here to Israel? You could have probably done uh, your work anywhere around the world, but I'm guessing that uh, the way you view the world draws you to do your holy work here in Israel. Uh, for many years now, I've wanted to spend more and more time in Israel and to um, just learn about the land and the people. And I, this is my fourth time in Israel. And this was an opportunity where I could uh, not only learn from the cancer researchers here, but also to really immerse myself in the culture and learn about this society and the holiness of the land. So you were raised in a Christian tradition, but at some point at college you left it? Why is that? Uh, well, I took a course in logic and I, I just had real difficulty understanding the Christian under, uh, way of thinking about God, um, which seemed to me very much within the system and it, uh, I just, just couldn't uh, really blend the two together the Aristotelian logic and Christian theology for me just didn't work together mm -hmm. whereas the more I learned about Judaism the more it seemed like they fit together perfectly well and Judaism was never threatened by uh, logic or the rational mind So you came to it through logic? Well I came to it really through a love of history and learning about the story of Western civilization and that there always seemed to be a backstory of the Jewish people um, and how they enlivened civilizations and then when the civilization turned against it, the civilization shortly thereafter died. So that just seemed to me a, a compelling and repetitive story um, as the Jewish people were revealing all kinds of values that we take for granted in the Western world now. Um, just it seemed like that was an important part of the story that was is little known and often ignored. That is very interesting, indeed. Indeed, I think that if you if you study history, that is a very compelling way to to believe that the Jewish people seem like a special thing, and then you start to kind of buy into the whole uh, biblical narrative uh, of a chosen people that that has been dispersed but has a light unto the nations effect and is now being ingathered. Is the ingathering part of something you grew up in the generation? where you saw a lot of the miracles of the rebirth of the state of Israel, the ingathering, did that have an impact on you? Uh, for sure. I think it's, people make a choice as to how to view the world, either as a series of coincidences and, and um, where there's no meaning or under, no underlying spiritual reality, or they start to see things that coalesce into a coherent story. And certainly the what's happening with the modern state of Israel is very much part of a, what I perceive to be a coherent story. Indeed. You're, you're a very, um, you have a kind of precision to your, to your way of thinking, kind of even coldness, I would say, kind of calm. Is that, is that a right analysis of the way you think? Uh, yeah, I guess so. It's also I'm not used to being interviewed, so <laughs> that's probably nervousness you're getting as well. <laughs> Nothing to be nervous about. The Ishai Fleischer Show welcomes all, and especially like yourself. And I think you should be feeling very welcome right now because you're really coming to Abraham, who, who in a sense came to some conclusions like yourself. Certainly about logic. He looked at the world and just did not believe that idolatry was logical. Yeah. And, he, and he questioned and he thought and he sat and, and, he, and he contemplated and he came to conclusions and then he started and then, and then grew out of that love. 
you're uh, you have a family with you uh, here. Your very tall young son here, and and others of your family, special family, very sweet family. Um, being no hide or being not of the paradigm around you, that's not an easy decision to make. You know, Christmas, even for a Jew, has a compelling, you know, smell and sound, and you kind of like, why not just like, why not just kind of go with the flow? Yeah, I don't think there's really much flow left in the Western world anymore. I don't think people are really, it's the religious um, instinct, I think, has left most people, and uh, it's been replaced by materialism, so I don't really feel I've given anything up. Um, and yet, the more I interact with the Jewish community, the, uh, and the, the incredible welcoming that I've I've received and my family's received from the Jewish community at their events and at their simchas, uh, the more I feel that I, I haven't given up meaning. I've only taken on more meaning in my life. One of the problems with being a Noahide is that you suddenly don't have like holidays and 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 rites. Uh, I mean, like uh, like religious rites, uh, you know processions and holidays and things like that. Uh, have you been finding that the Jewish holidays are, are giving you that place in that community? Absolutely, for sure. I, I very much relate to the Jewish holidays while always remembering that I was not, um, I have not been given the 613 commandments. I recognize what my role is in, in life, but I very much connect with the holidays. Uh, Dr. Owen, uh, what about cancer? We're working on that sucker? What's going on with that? Uh, for sure. It's, a, it's an incredibly challenging field, but um, being uh, involved in it myself, I, I'm amazed at how fast uh, progress is, and uh, I'm very optimistic, um, both in, in the work that uh, we're doing in my lab and also just in the general sense. I think uh, incredible discoveries are being made all the time. Yeah, you're hopeful that, uh, and I know cancer is not one thing. It's one of the mistakes that kind of lay people make. It's not like one disease. It's kind of many different kinds of um, diseases within a category, and they need to be worked on very differently, and one pill may work on breast cancer and will not work on other cancers. Uh, but you're, you think that on the whole we're heading in the right direction? Yeah, absolutely. There's so many different avenues that people are taking, and they're all synergistically moving the survival rate up one percentage at a time for each of the different kinds of cancers. And even the rarer cancers are being studied uh, quite successfully. Dr. Owen, you're here in Israel on sabbatical studying cancer, and you're also here in Israel connecting to your own spiritual roots. So you may be in one of the Israel's top hospitals in the afternoon. Today you're with me here at Marat Machpelah. Closing thoughts, closing feelings. Um, I'll miss this place when I go, when I go back home. Uh, so it's been a pleasure being here, and um, I'll be back. Well, you know, uh, there's pilgrimage holidays, and, uh, and there's also the fourth pilgrimage holiday, which is the summertime, right? Just coming here with your family. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for coming today. Thanks for making Abraham happy, and thanks for helping us, uh, helping Israel, and helping the world fight cancer. It's very much my pleasure. Thank you. All right, folks, you've been listening to the Yishai Fleischer Show. I hope you enjoyed Thane Rosenbaum, uh, great intellectual from New York City, Congressman Brian Mast. And Dr. Owen, amazing folks doing great things uh, in the world and for Israel as well. You're doing great things by listening to the show. Speaking of great things, I do want to thank uh, my man, Gary from Santa Monica, who uh, gave a great donation at EshaiFleischer.com. Makes all the difference in the world. Thank you, Gary. Thank you very much. Really makes a difference for us. I want you to check out our sponsors as well. Check out JBrick, great Jewish Lego sets for you and your kids. Uh, check out 
Techelet.com, T-E-K-H-E-L-E-T, for your blue string, be a true blue Jew. Come visit us at Hebron, Hebron Fund. .org will get you there. Come on a tour. We have weekly tours to the tombs of the fathers and the mothers and, of course, the Land of Israel Network, which is this great station, and janglo.net, which is a way for you to find out what's going on in Israel. Check out our sponsors. Uh, drop my name. It makes all the difference in the world. And also write me an email, yishai at thelandofisrael.com. Really, uh, I'd love to connect with you. Connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, uh, and all the other ways. And write me an email. Yeah, just just do it. Just write me a short little email. And if you go to ishaifleischer.com and, and hit the donate button, it makes a big difference and, and makes the show happen and all the other activities that we do. So thank you very much. Right now I'm back in my living room here on the Mount of Olives overlooking the Temple Mount. I want to wish you a great continuing summer. Enjoy that time with the kids. Don't get too stressed out. Everything is great. God is bringing the Jewish people back home. Uh, he is embracing all of us wherever we are. And he has great secrets and great knowledge, and all we could do is ask him just to be, uh, just to give us a chance to be a little bit more in his life so that he could be in our life. Or maybe it's the other way. I don't know. One way or the other, uh, we are connected to the story of God. He is broadcasting. We're listening. We're going to be part of this great time. We're going to be strong. We're not going to let anybody break us. We're not going to let the enemies get to us. We're not going to get the little things, let, let the little things, you know, needle us and, 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 and cause anxiety. We're going to be strong. We're going to be a, a clear-eyed, direct. We have a great mission. We're part of it. We're not going to be afraid of anything, anything, anything. We're going to smile. We're going to thank God for every moment we have in this amazing life. I also want to thank my good man, my friend, Moshe uh, for uploading this show and, and taking care of it on all the channels. My main man, Ben Bresky as well, uh, who does such a great job. Uh, Tabitha, our good uh, uh, email engineer at the Land of Israel Network. And I want to thank you more than anything. Actually, I want to thank you, and then I want to thank God. So thank you, thank God. Stay tuned, stay strong, stay connected, and shalom. What does it mean to be a Jew in the land of Israel as a Jew in Judea? What is our message to the world? We're finally back in our land, and we get to ask these questions. Ezrat Hashem, we're going to make Judea and Samaria an issue for the entire world to know that the Jews have a place in the world. Israel Inspired with Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel on the Land of Israel Network at thelandofisrael.com.